Good morning and wel welcome to this uh, Herald and Sunday Herald Meet the Author session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and Sue is going to be signing the event today. And I'm pleased to be introducing and speaking with a great writer from South Africa, Andre Brink. He's been um, writing novels and plays and uh, polemical works and teaching literature for, well, probably 45 or so years, mm -hmm. about, uh, that's probably approximately right, uh, and brings with him a wealth of talent, experience and wisdom to Edinburgh. His uh, 1973 novel, Kenneth van der Aand, which means looking into the darkness, looking into darkness, was the first uh, Afrikaans novel to be banned in South Africa. And I think he's here with his 17th novel. Um, Something like that. Approximately. <laughs> um, Praying Mantis, which looks at the life of a real historical figure, Cupido Cockroach, who becomes the first Hottentot or Khoi to be a missionary at the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and, and after attaining this this momentous position, he's abandoned by the Missionary Society. It's a very um, heart, you know, felt, heart-moving and, and uh, extremely brilliant evocation of a time and a place and a man. And we're going to begin by having the great privilege of listening to Andre Brink reading from Praying Mantis. So please welcome him. I discussed this with Ramona beforehand and we decided that perhaps there may be space or time for two very brief excerpts. The first one comes towards the end of the first of three parts in the novel uh, when Cupido is listening to a sermon preached by that most remarkable of London missionaries who came to the Cape at the end of the 18th century. Uh, I won't dwell too long on him, but he is one of the most remarkable people who ever set foot in South Africa. A very tall man, a man as learned as his great, for, uh, great Dutch forerunner Erasmus, who could speak fluently, apparently, 18 languages, including ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, and then after a boating accident in Holland in which he lost his daughter and his uh, child, he decided to devote the rest of his life to the service of God. What made it particularly interesting was that one, if one reads carefully between the lines, one gets the impression that he did not actually believe in God, but he was really using God as a sort of safety net. God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have a soul. That kind of approach. Um, and Cupido, who grew up on a series of Dutch farms, uh, grew up completely uh, formed, shaped by the cosmology and the mythology of the so-called Hottentots and Bushmen, the Khoisan peoples of southern Africa. Uh, and then eventually he fell for Christianity and listening to Dr. van der Kemp preach uh, was one of the turning events which made him decide to become a Christian and really in his excessive zeal out uh, do all the other missionaries of his time. It starts with a reference to von der Kemp telling them about his life in Holland and then moving into 
a more specific religious uh, diatribe. Once again his voice attempts the ascent into heaven, higher and higher. And this time Capito is so transported that the miracle happens. He sees the reverend starting to swing his long arms once more, rowing and rowing like two great wheels beginning to turn, two enormous wings. And then he sees the reverend floating up very slowly at first, then accelerating with larger flailings of his arms. And not only the reverend, but Capito too. He can feel his body coming into motion, his arms sprouting feathers as they are transformed into wings, the huge wings of an eagle, a trembling that begins in his feet and moves up through his thin legs and higher still up along his spine, the vertebrae of his neck still higher, and now the movement is spreading from him to the rest of the people. All of them, men and women and children, up to the high ceiling and out through the windows like a flock of birds wheeling and spreading out over the whole town and heading for the mountains. High above all hills and copies and ridges and heights, along the sluggish meanderings of the Sunday's river, and still on to the blood-red sea, following the coastline past the mouths of many rivers, the Bushman's River and the Reach River and the Great Fish River, beyond the border, beyond all imaginable borders, impossibly far away, and still higher and higher, past the moon and the stars, all the way to the sun, and then right through the sun, one blinding light to all sides, a flood of purest light that shines through them, cleansing them like the brightest soap Anna has ever boiled, and then back, more and more slowly, reluctantly, languidly, until at last he can make out the town below them again. The broad streets bordered by water furrows, the oblong gardens, the sparse trees, the sprinkling of houses, the Drosday, the church. And at last they are back in their seats, and the reverend comes down among them from the heavens above, flapping his wings a few last times, one last time, shuddering to the tips of his long feathers and coming to rest in a final quiver. His face is aglow, he is wet with perspiration, his huge domed head, like the egg of some outlandish bird from another space, is shining wet. Many of the people are sobbing with uncontrollable emotion. Cupido sits gasping, open-mouthed. It feels as if he has been with a woman who has drained him to every last drop of moisture in his body, every last thought in his mind. And from this moment, perhaps, to uh, find a little bridge towards the other passage, uh, which I'll be reading and which is also very short, uh, that takes us back to his meeting with a woman who is to become his wife, Anna, the soap boiler, the greatest soap boiler of the region of the Eastern Cape. Um, what happens is that Cupido, through his early years, before he became a Christian, uh, was a most remarkable man, always a person of excesses, as a hunter, as a fighter, as a drinker, as a humanizer, uh, not a humanizer, womanizer, uh, <laughs> you name it. And when he settles in, the, in a new region of the Eastern Cape, word reaches him of a woman, Anna Vigilant, 
who has the reputation of being the greatest fornicator of that particular region. So inevitably the two of them have to meet at some stage. It is arranged from both sides. They have to decide who is the better. Um, they arrange to meet on a New Year's uh, night uh, on the top of a high hill uh, at a time of the year when the work on the farms is temporarily suspended and there is the time and the leisure for them really to go about their business. For a long time, Cupido does not want to yield to the uh, urging of everybody around him to meet this woman, but then finally decides that the only way in which his reputation can remain intact is by accepting this particular challenge. So finally, Cupido sends a message to the woman how does he send it? With a young boy, some people say. A boy as old as he was when he was sent to the neighbors with quinces and pomegranates. But others say, no, it was not a boy. Then what was it? It was a hare, of course. Oh, no, others argue, not a hare. What about a chameleon? No, not a chameleon. What then? It was the wind. When there is a great message to be delivered, only the wind can be trusted to do it safely. So we decide, all right, then Cupido sends his message with the wind. And the woman asks the wind to take back her answer. She says, yes, we shall meet on the mountain at the very top where there's a small even patch, as if a great hand has flattened it, on the night when the old year merges with the new. This allows Cupido Cockroach a few days to consider how to set about it, for it is not simply a matter of storming in. A whole life is at stake two lives for all he knows. During this time of waiting, Cupido Cockroach first consults his mirror. Um, I won't go into that because he, he has inherited a mirror from a passing uh, traveler and uh, this to him remains a miracle because every time he looks in the mirror, a face looks back. Prior to this, he had never seen a mirror. He consults the mirror, the mirror gives him the go-ahead and on New Year's Eve, the people begin to gather where the laborers' huts stand huddled together, irresolute and self-conscious, like guests summoned to a baptism or a wedding or a funeral, but reluctant to appear too eager. That is where they all converge from near and far over hills and plains and ridges and ranges, men and women and children in a crowd such as those parts have not yet witnessed, not even for Nachmal. And as it happens, the moon is full, a sign that Haiti Abib and Sui Guab have chosen to attend in person. They are two of the most important gods from the constellation of gods in uh, Hottentot cosmology. Which, even under ordinary circumstances, would have been an occasion to dance and celebrate. That night, when the moon sits in the middle of the sky, all the people are gathered in row upon row around the clearing in front of the huts. That is when Cupido emerges from his own hut and shakes hands with each of them as if he is taking his leave before he goes off on his own across the bare felt, then up along the slope of the mountain towards the moon. At the very top where the slope levels down, he has already built during the preceding days a small shelter of dry branches, not very spacious but big enough for two, with two cow hides covering the entrance. That is where he arrives, draped in his caross of jackal skins. 
And from the far side of the mountain, the woman comes, covered from head to foot in her cross of dusty skins. She's dragging one foot behind her. Far away, down at the farmyard, the people are waiting, buzzing like a beehive. Music begins to sound, a number of guras and red reed flutes and oxhide drums. Everything happens very slowly and deliberately. No one is in a hurry. No one really listens. All ears are tuned inward where the silence is taut as a thrumming string. All talk dies down. All movement freezes. Up on the mountain top, where it grazes the lower stars, the two contestants duck into the shelter. Neither of them says a word. From now on, their only witnesses will be the full moon and the stars, of course, and the wind, most likely. Just inside the entrance, they shake off their carosses. Both bodies must have been greased with lard and buchu, for in the brief moment before the cowhides are dropped over the dark entrance, there is a glimmering of bare limbs in the moonlight. Sss, say the stars, as if water has been poured on their embers. There's something like two whirlwinds of moonlight and darkness churning about inside the shelter. The woman begins to make music deep in her throat. Cupido growls like a leopard. In the most distant distance, where the people are waiting in a throng, the drums cast a rumble of thunder up at the sky. The flutes sing, the guras whine and drone. Inside the hut, there's no moment of rest or respite. The whirlwinds keep on whirling. Overhead, the moon begins its slow descent. The Milky Way spirals past. The great hunter strides on inside the shelter. The shadows spin and whirl. No end to it. It must be halfway to the morning when something extraordinary happens. As they come careening once again past the Karos, which Cupid has thrown off, in some obscure way he grabs a clutch of fireflies, lowers his hand to where their bodies are joined, and releases a fly. It gives off a small, bright, foaming streak of light. There's a spark. A panting, thrusting, tumbling interval. Then another spark. From the depths of her throat, the woman warbles like a night bird winging up into the sky. More sparks. None of them can have much life left in them by now, but still they go on. Now, now, now. He bellows, the woman screams, and in her scream she shapes herself into a name, Anna Vigilant. He releases a whole handful of fireflies between their thighs. They chatter like shooting stars, like a rain of comets in the night sky, which is already turning red at the edges. The stars shout and roar and yell and thunder. Anna is on fire, the shelter is going up in flames. If for a moment they are petrified with fright, it does not last long, for as they look around them, there are no flames to put out. The dry branches of the day before are covered in young green shoots and foliage, livid with flowers. And Cupido Cockroach and Anna Vigilant emerge from the entrance, modestly cover once again with their carosses, walking hand in hand. Together they start going down the incline, back to the people where the music is still keening and rejoicing, back to the everyday world. So far.
I, I think you will make fireflies a must-have sort of erotic <laughs> accoutrement from now on. There'll, there'll be a market for them, I'm sure. Now, I mean, any, anybody listening to that can hear the, the creativity, the, you know, the, the, the extraordinary writing that's gone into you imagining these moments. But can we, can we just, just go back to what, what you knew? What is there to know about the real Cupido? Um, what's available? What did you begin with? There's actually very little available about Cupido. It was exactly 20 years ago when, for the first time, I found an article in a scholarly historical journal uh, by a woman called V.C. Mulherber. She's really a, an American who married a South African and became one of the great uh, researchers into 18th and early 19th century South African history. And this article was entitled The Life and Times of Cupido Cockerlock. His Dutch name was Cockerlock, which translates into cockroach. A fascinating article, recording practically everything that is known about this man. But to her, as to all other historians, and for obvious reasons, his life starts at about 45, 46, when he enters the church. Prior to that, when he was simply a... Uh, a coy laborer on a farm in the Eastern Cape, originally in that part of the Karoo known as the Cope, um, and afterwards in the near the eastern frontier, in the vicinity of uh, where Graf Renet uh, is at the moment. Um, before that, and during that time, nobody knew about him. Uh, it was just a very, very ordinary, marginalized person when finally he moved into the church and became the first Hottentot actually to be ordained as a missionary, obviously that attracted some attention. But the strange thing was that, perhaps not so strange after all, was that once he was ordained and the London Missionary Society sent him into the deep interior of the country, uh, to the very uh, edge of what today is Botswana, um, and dumped him there in a place of stones, where he has a congregation of about 800 people, the Korana tribe, whose language he doesn't know, because in their wisdom the missionaries assumed that all the black people of Africa spoke the same language and could understand each other. So there he was, they couldn't understand him, he couldn't understand them, and no wonder that uh, within the first few years they started drifting off into the desert and he was left alone, first with his family, his new wife and two children, and then they left him, so that in the end there wasn't a single person he could preach to, at which stage he then started preaching to the stones and the thorn trees and the odd passing lizard or tortoise or whatever. And is this in your imagination or is this in this article? No, this is all in the article, and that is what fascinated me. I think the first thing that really captured my imagination was just the name, a name like Cupido Cockroach, is not exactly something one <laughs> finds every day. So this appealed to me enormously. And I wanted to plunge into the writing immediately. But when I reached that point, and in fact at that stage in the early 80s, I, I did write the first chapter, I suddenly realized, but there is nothing known about the real person. Uh, a person who must have grown up within the belief system of the Hottentot people and also the Bushman people, because his wife was uh, a son. So I had to start researching and inquiring and reading everything I could lay my hands on about the, this cosmology, this mythology. 
And even that was only a starting point. I had to reread, and that was a part of South African history that has always fascinated me. But I had to start rereading every single thing I could find about the early actions of the missionaries, about the early conflicts near the eastern frontier of the Cape Colony between the Dutch colonists who had settled there and the Koza people invading from the uh, further east, northeast, across the Fish River, which had been the frontier for quite a long time. So there were these skirmishes. There was uh, the British colonial office and colonial policy to try to keep these tribes apart, uh, and not with very much success. But it was a time of turbulence and, and conflict, uh, which really sporadically sent up the whole eastern frontier in flames. So it was a matter of really digging deep, more and more deeply into this world of conflict and strife and trying to imagine this individual, this person, trying to imagine how he would have lived before moving into the church, how the particular zeal with which he became a missionary must have been fed by other belief systems before that. Uh, and from some of the things which were written about him by von der Kemp and von der Kemp's sidekick, the young uh, Reed, uh, Reverend Reed, uh, one knows that he had been a, a kind of latter-day version of St. Augustine as a great sinner, really doing everything with total abandon, uh, so that he could simply carry that way of living over into the Christian domain. Uh, and it, it, it really took 20 years of living with the possibilities of the unknown part of the known Cupido, which finally erupted in the writing. Because you started in 84, you, you went back to it in 92, and then in 2004, you, for your 70th birthday, you actually completed the mission, and you wrote all of those other books in the meantime. But this one must have been nagging at you. Oh, it, 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 it just... Uh, stuck its claws into me and kept holding on. I knew it would never let go of me before I had finally written it out of my system, as uh, it were. And what was, I mean, was it, did you need to be 70 to find the solution? <laughs> In a way, yes, it might have been better if I'd waited till 80. <laughs> but the, I think the problem was, for me, that for the last few years, when suddenly I realised that 70 was looming, I was so totally daunted by the idea. The, the, the only previous time on my, in my life when I had this feeling was when I was about to turn 30. I thought that was the end of the world. Uh, and then I stayed in bed for three days. I just couldn't face the idea of what could happen to one after 30 that, that was still worthwhile. I managed to survive that. And I knew, perhaps as a result of that, that 70 might also be survivable. But uh, uh, I had my doubts about that. And I thought the only way in which I could console myself and more or less comfort myself and make it somewhat more bearable would be to write myself a book for that birthday. Uh, and I worked through the notes I had accumulated over many years for several possible books. And then Cupido sort of winked and said, but don't you think it's time we meet up again? And that's where it started. 
I think the last time we spoke was on a satellite link between South Africa and Australia about your novel Death Valley, which was your imagination of, of the life of a community set deep in the Swartberg range of... Devil's Valley. Devil, sorry, Death Valley, yes, Devil's Valley, of the, the Cape Province, <coughs> which was opened up to the world in the 1960s, and it was a kind of metaphor, I thought, for the, the mental and the spiritual and political isolation of the Afrikaans in South Africa. And this book imagines a different journey, also based on historical characters that, that we've just spoken about. So I wonder whether you see your role as telling your countrymen in the world the stories of how things became as they were, as they are. In, in the place where you come from? I think that, to a large extent, is what happens. Uh, I would be a bit reluctant to say that I see my role as being that. I think it's always very uh, dangerous when a writer starts conceiving of her or his life as comprising a particular role, a sort of prophetic mission or whatever. That, that can lead to the most dangerous kind of writing and the most indigestible forms of writing. Uh, but I think especially since the political changeover in the country started um, just over 10 years ago, uh, when the urgency of writing about the political, socio-political scene, about apartheid, was receding to a certain extent, even though one has to recognize that a changeover is never complete, and we are still carrying with us so much of the burden of the past that a lot remains to be resolved, also through writing. But there was a new sense of inner freedom, of being able simply to sit down and indulge, perhaps, by writing whatever one felt like writing at a given moment, without feeling obliged to oneself, not to anyone outside, uh, to write about specifically this and not about anything else. That is also one reason why Cupido could come back to me. Uh, and why I could recognize in him, I think, the possibility of exploring the world today and South Africa today against a much larger historical background. Uh, because that is, as you suggested, something which continues to fascinate me. Where do things come from? Where does today's world have its origins and its roots? There's never, obviously, a, a very clear, immediate, one-to-one -one sort of uh, uh, cause and effect relationship there. But in order to understand our world a little bit better, a bit more completely, I always find it enormously useful and, and simply much more fun to delve into the stories of the past and, and, and look at possi possible beginnings and see how far one can move back into these. You mentioned the, the story of the mirror there that Cupido uses, this just you know, extraordinary thing that he can see this person who's always there for him you know, whenever he looks. And there's also another description of his response when he, he understands the function of a letter, that this, this thing without a mouth then can tell on you because um, it's got writing on it and mm. he doesn't understand about writing but it's something that can speak without a mouth. And all of these things you, you've imagined um, what, what for, for him coming out of his um, world of gods and magic and devils and spirits, um, his interpretation of what he's presented with. Um, how did you think yourself into that kind of um, mentality, I suppose? I think to a large extent that was made much, more, much easier, much more accessible 
by growing up in South Africa, where I still find that as an, in the first place, an Afrikaans writer, there are two huge traditions of storytelling which I can draw on all the time. <coughs> Sorry. On the one hand, there is the ancient African oral tradition of narrative, which uh, presented to the world a kind of, of, of magic realism, for want of a better term, uh, which has become almost exclusively associated with with Marquez and Donoso and, 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 and Yosa and Allende and the, the people from Latin America. But in fact, Africa has had its versions of magic realism centuries earlier. Uh, and I can still remember not the details of the stories told to me by my old black nanny when I was very small, but really the cadences of her storytelling and her story singing. Uh, she was a Sutu. And she told me these stories from this ancient African narrative tradition. And I think they were simply assimilated in my bloodstream. And gradually, more and more, I find that I return to those memories, stimulated, obviously, and, and, and expanded by the reading I can now do into these traditions. Because so much of the old oral stuff has fortunately been written down since then. And on the other hand, there have been traditions among uh, older generations of Afrikaners. Most of these storytellers were men, but there were some fascinating women storytellers among them as well. Uh, stories in which the ancestors, in the form of ghosts and revenants and, 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 and spirits, uh, are kept alive. And the, the movement between the natural and the supernatural, between the past and the present, uh, is fluid and easy and uh, always wonderfully illuminating and informed by a sense of fun and joy and exuberance. And that, I think, feeds into the present spirit of the country, uh, the present uh, situation in which, as a writer, I find myself in South Africa right now, where there is the sense of excitement, of adventure, of uh, rediscovering the past, huge tracts of our past which have never been written down. Because for so long there used to be one version, one officially sanctioned version of the South African history, devised by white men, and both those terms are important. It was very much a, a, a chauvinistic and uh, uh, patriarchal white western version of the past and what one is discovering now in the writing of also so many younger writers black writers, colored writers, white writers, men, women, all of them uh, about their particular versions of our past. We have innumerable histories and the richness of that discovery or rediscovery is just such that it is pure joy to be alive here and now which is why, having passed that once terrifying milestone, I feel I've got enough for at least another 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> One of the questions that I suppose is asked in the book is, you know, how, how, what should a man believe, what, what should anybody believe, uh, you know, about the gods and the world and what you, what, you know, who should you you put your store in, or what you sh should you put your store in. And there's a lot of sort of practical spirituality um, about, about Cupido. I mean, he's, 
and, 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 and his family really, that their gods have, have been you know, perfectly fine up until now, but there's this other god who seems to be you know, with these very powerful people, so it must be a pow pretty powerful presence. And there's a certain weighing up of in what situations which gods you might use. I think he, he had the luxury, also the, uh, the sometimes terrifying experience of having encountered several different possible religious interpretations of the world and being able to choose initially, I suppose inevitably, he moves like a pendulum from one to the other, every time with a sense of exclusivity about the one that he is living in at the particular moment. But gradually, as he grows older, and as he is stripped of everything that used to be his, that he used to uh, identify himself with and through, uh, there is a growing understanding, an intimation perhaps more than anything else, that somewhere all of these are linked. Each becomes in, uh, indispensable to the others. In the course of the book, he writes a series of letters to God whenever he finds himself in a, in a particular predicament. Uh, which the missionaries can't solve. He writes a letter to God. Um, and in the last of these, when he has, is down to his last scrap of paper, he, among other things, asks God to transmit some messages to his gods, to Chuiguap and Chetzi Ebep, uh, because he sees them as all living happily, more or less happily, together up there somewhere. Where did the letters come from, the idea for the letters to God? Uh, that was really just from the eagerness which is reported in that early article on Cupido with which he started writing. He, he became an avid writer of letters uh, to the missionaries, even to the authorities in London, certainly the authorities in Cape Town, uh, to a number of uh, his fellow Khoi people whom he knew couldn't read, but uh, the writing was more compulsive than... than, than uh, the real circumstances and, and, and the real questions about whether the receivers would be able to read. Uh, one of the saddest things about this whole process of research in the archives in Cape Town was that almost nothing of this has been preserved. Th some of the letters which he wrote to the missionary authorities are still there, but they've all been translated from the Dutch in which he wrote them into a more or less acceptable, standardized English of the late 18th century uh, by some very diligent scribes. Uh, but in the process, everything is really, in the terms of that marvelous recent film, lost in translation. Uh, but uh, that, again, it, there's always a, a, a positive side to a negative like this. So there was the sadness of not being able to find a letter actually written by him and look at his handwriting and uh, touch the paper. But on the other hand, it left me free to imagine what letters he might have written, what sort of language uh, he could possibly have used. And um, to me, it seemed pretty obvious, given the way in which the spiritual and the physical constantly merged into one another in his way of thinking, uh, that writing to God would be an almost inevitable recourse. The spiritual and the physical, um, that, that phrase just reminds me of, of the other thing you've done so well, which is looking out on a landscape which, to some eyes, maybe white eyes, looks like a whole lot of rocks and a whole lot of... Um, 
sand and uh, straggly trees. And um, through, through the eyes of the Africans, there's a whole pantheon of gods and a pantheon of stories and particular songs and particular histories. It is extraordinary how, how the, some, some landscape can come alive if you just know what to look for. And very often the, 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 uh, uh, the poorer, the more drought-stricken, the more ravaged the landscape may look to the eye, the richer its possibilities seem to become. And that is something which I found in the couple of visits I've paid to Australia. And one certainly finds it all over Africa. I've even come across that in, uh, in Iceland, where the landscape can be very barren and, and frowning and formidable. Uh, but also in these regions, what I found is that these common denominators uh, within the mythologies of these people, that there is, for instance, the almost general acceptance that there are certain spots in the geography of a countryside where if you find the right spot and you know where to go, but if you don't know the spot, you could also uh, enter into a certain state of mind which makes it possible to make this transition. And then you move from your ordinary everyday world, either through a fissure in a rock or um, through a cave or, as I said, simply by going into a trance and experiencing a kind of uh, mental change, you move into another world where there are other meanings attached to everything that you see. Every stone becomes a live creature. Uh, and you are surrounded by the innumerable dead of that particular countryside. Everybody who has ever lived there and died becomes visible, and there's a, a constant intercourse with them. Uh, a constant chorus of voices speaking to you, and it's only a matter of tuning your ear into these wonderful alternative existences to discover the the true miracles of of a given drought-stricken landscape. It's, it seems sort of remarkable that they would have given all this up for a rather austere Christianity, um, but of course it, it was it was helped with food and and water and I mean and missionaries tobacco, and, and tobacco and uh, alcohol. I'm so afraid the missionaries knew exactly <laughs> how to go about it. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not by nature a missionary basher and I know that has become a sort of uh, common pursuit among many people looking at the effect of missionaries in, uh, among older cultures in the world. Uh, and I have encountered a few in, in doing the research for this book, I have encountered a few quite remarkable persons. One that I feel I have a particular soft spot about is uh, James Reed, much younger than van der Kemp, forced to live in the shadow of a really illustrious person, uh, not as well endowed mentally and spiritually as, as, as van der Kemp was, um, and in that respect, he resembled von der Kemp, not just a man of the spirit, but very much a man of the flesh. Uh, he married, as von der Kemp did, uh, a very young Hottentot girl who was in her early teens. <coughs> and that was, to a certain extent, acceptable uh, because it was seen as an attempt, really, to identify himself completely with the people among whom he was working. But then he started the relationship with the just about nubile daughter of his chief elder, 
and that was frowned on so sternly that he was kicked out of the church. Uh, it is something which I may pursue in another book later because the, 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 the older Reed became a fascinating person. He became the instigator of perhaps the most important rebellion against the Cape authorities in the 19th century among the Hottentots. Uh, so I find something very, pathe very pathetic, yes, but also very sympathetic in Reed. But then there was my favorite hate, uh, and that is uh, Robert Moffat. Uh, today still regarded as one of the greatest of the missionaries, father of uh, David Livingston, uh, uh, father-in-law of David Livingston, who married Moffat's daughter Mary. Uh, and he seemed to me to epitomize the best and the worst of the notion of liberal, uh, which has a particular set of connotations in South Africa. But he came from Britain believing that he was a man of God, that he had access to the only true gospel, and that he was going to uplift the poor heathen, and he couldn't care a damn about their their sets of beliefs, the things that, that shaped them into what they were. He knew he had the answers and he was bloody well going to impose these answers on them and uh, rid them of these superstitions and evils and, 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 and unfortunate excesses which burdened their lives. Simply by imposing the burden of his very austere, stark religion on them. Uh, so he was a very unfortunate person and if one, if one reads his autobiography, his journals, uh, it is remarkable that he seems to have been aware of much of this but always putting it in the best possible light. He was responsible for the fact, for instance, that when Cupido was based at this desolate little mission station in the deep interior, they conveniently forgot all about him. He was promised that he would get two helpers, two assistants to start with. He would be given regular supplies of meat and flour and even tobacco. Uh, and none of that ever materialized. In the eight years which he spent there before he moved off into Africa, and nobody ever heard of him again, uh, he wasn't given anything whatsoever. Right at the beginning, they gave him a sheep, a single sheep, and that was that. Not, a, not an ounce of flour after that, nothing. He simply had to make do. And these were the people of God who brought the word and the gospel but couldn't care less about seeing to the material needs of a person like Cupido and his flock. So um, I really do not have a very high regard of uh, the Reverend Moffat. <laughs> but he is also representative of a certain kind of mentality which so many of these missionaries, thank heavens not all of them, they were wonderful exceptions. But they did f um, fulfill a, a function between the, the violence of the colonists and a response oh, yes. of the Africans. They, they did steady things a bit, didn't they? Oh, that, that was a remarkable contribution which they, which they made, especially in, in those faraway uh, regions of the Eastern Cape, far from the authority of the Cape, where these colonists had moved beyond the, 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 the scope and the reach of the law. Uh, they were a law unto themselves. They were an absolutely horrendous bunch, although there too they were some absolutely remarkable uh, individuals. But 
the missionaries moved in there, established the mission station of uh, Bethelsdorf, and they started gathering the dispossessed Khoi people around them, uh, simply trying to keep them alive, to give them something uh, to alleviate the terrible life of oppression and cruelty uh, which they had to endure among the colonists. Uh, and there, certainly, yes, they, 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 they did an enormous amount there. And in terms of uh, rudimentary education, simply trying to make them aware of what, as human beings, they had a right to expect in the world and from the world, there they made a tremendous contribution. But unfortunately, the, the pros and cons were pretty evenly matched. Your interest um, is sort of global, isn't it, in all of the different elements of all of the different players. You have sympathy for, you know, you can put yourself in the position of, of all of these people. I think that is one of the basic starting points of writing, that you must be able to identify yourself with the best and the worst. And very often the worst can be more fascinating than anything else. <laughs> but one must really, in order to write about Moffat, even though I detest him as a monster, uh, I first had to try and understand why did he do the things he did? What, what drove him to act in the particular way he did? It's not just, it is not enough to say he was simply a bad man. He wasn't a bad man. Uh, but to understand the deeper motives and the way in which the person and the personality of the person interacts with the surrounding world, with a physical, geographical, topographical world, uh, and how Christianity becomes changed and adapted as it moves from one region to another. All of this is so fascinating, and all of this demands that jump into the mind and the mindset of the other. Perhaps I can ask one last question before um, I open it up for the rest of the audience. Um, you've got some lovely lists in this book, um, lists of place names, um, both African place names and Afrikaner Afrikan place names, and... Um, can you tell me a little bit about the poetry of those names? That obviously, you, maybe you should read. Um, I think there's You've a, got a page there. Yeah, 56, I think, on page. Um, because that, this has really struck you, that the, uh, the poetry, I think, of some of these things. I think this is a particular technique which I first encountered in Rabelais, uh, where, when he starts getting carried away simply by adjectives. He would go on for pages and pages and pages and, and really become so enthralled and in the process enthralls the reader. Uh, and to me this seemed to be a, a kind, become a kind of incantation in which the, the realities of the land embodied in names um, can be communicated to the reader to, uh, to the extent in which they originally must have been communicated to somebody like Cupido as he moved from one place to another across the Yakos and Dwaika and Khamka rivers, past Feyerflay or Fig Valley, along the course of the Sand River, over Druerberg, the dry mountain, and Wittberg, the white mountain, up the Druerklofberge, that is the dry cliff range, to Bakwentlaag, the oven plain, and Grunpoort, the green gateway, past Quahapul, the Quahapul, and Ritkeil, the Reed Hollow, past Insam, which is loneliness, to the Bushmanpoort Berg, the Bushman Gateway Mountain, 
Below from Petersburg, Trumpeters Mountain, to Graslachte, Grassy Plain, and on to Plattbos and Bloopwort and the Klein Winterhoekberge, through the barren stretches of Faldry and Snake Fountain, up the high road to Plum Hill and Olive Fountain, and not forgetting Horse Fountain and Garlic Fountain, and otherwise along the low road to Wuchenest and Okralleerte, followed by Spielmanns Kral and Faldry and Guarina, and it goes on for pages. <laughs> but it's, a, it's like a map, isn't it? I mean, uh, you have to. Re to, to remember a map, yes. to chant a map. Yes, it, it, it's a map in music. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. Um, let's put the lights up a little bit and see whether um, we've got some brave souls who've got a, a hand up. And yes, there's two here. One, this lady with the white and just in front of her. Just a second, could you just wait until we get the microphone to you so we can all hear you and um, speak right into it. In, in your description of the event in was it something totally of your own imagination or did you find the roots of it in the mythology that you um, looked up you know, and read about before you wrote the book? Oh, a lot, a lot of came out of existing uh, accounts of the myths and legends recounted by the Bushmen and the, and, and, and the Hottentot people, the Khoisan peoples. Uh, Every time I really tried as much as possible to use something actual, particular events, moments, imaginings in the, uh, the old myths as a starting point for just taking off and doing a sort of musical cadenza, as it were, in the imagination. Could you give the microphone to the man in front of you? S since uh, the political change in South Africa, the English language appears to have spread quite widely, particularly among Africans. Is there a future for Afrikaans and for, Afri and for writing in Afrikaans, do you think? Um, I think there is. There is a continuing debate about that, simply because, so unfortunately, Afrikaans had become the language of apartheid. But uh, I think one should always bear in mind the fact that the, the real origins and development of the Afrikaans language had a lot to do with the previously deprived and oppressed people at the, at, 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 uh, in the Cape Colony and, and elsewhere because this patois, this kind of uh, creo creolized language which was formed in the mouths of slaves and indigenous Khoisan peoples who could not speak Dutch properly, that these people were always regarded as inferior to the, to the officials who came from, German, from Germany too, but, but uh, especially from Holland, and later from Britain, um, so that for, for centuries it remained a badge worn by the deprived and oppressed people at the, of the country. And it was fortunate and unfortunate that at the end of the 19th century, a group of white men uh, consciously turned this language into their vehicle of expression in order to use it as a political instrument against the Dutch and the English authorities at the Cape. Uh, and they succeeded so well that unfortunately success overran them. And then they could take over the position of political power in South Africa and made it into the language of oppression, the language of apartheid. But there was always a strain of it that remained linked to the original roots of the colored deprived peoples of the country. 
And even in the midst of the apartheid years, uh, at some centers like the University of the Western Cape, there were bunches of people, young people, a student population, who said, but Afrikaans is really our language. We want to reclaim it and turn it into the language of the people again. And I think that lent a certain impetus to the language, which creates the possibility for it to continue moving on. And the fact that more than half of the mother tongue speakers of Afrikaans in the country are not white, uh, given the political setup of the country, seems to me to guarantee the possibility of a continuing future for it. So I, uh, I have a reasonable amount of optimism for that, and certainly I continue to write in Afrikaans alongside of English, simply because it is, it is such a joy to be working in it, a language shaped within the realities of the southern part of Africa and expressing it with an immediacy and a verve and a colorful quality, which I think would make it a huge, huge pity if it were simply to disappear. Yes, madam. Yes. Um, in Canada, which is where I'm from, um, the native people uh, have made it very clear that they feel that they themselves should be telling their own stories about their own past. And, um, and so I wonder if this is an issue that you have come across in South Africa or, or more generally. Oh, absolutely. I know that in Canada people are perhaps more acutely conscious of this than it has so far become in South Africa. Uh, but there are wonderful signs of uh, an increasingly vital urge to get the people of South Africa to tell their own stories. And it was a process which started becoming public during the inquiries of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where for the first time in the history of the country, ordinary people, thousands of ordinary people who had suffered under apartheid, were invited to come and tell their stories. And it came as a sort of Vesuvian explosion in the South African consciousness. And to me it seems, although much of that early vigor has become dissipated by now, in a variety of other forms, it continues, and the, the urge to find expression for the people themselves, which is a slightly clumsy term, but I think we know what is meant by that. And the way in which this has already started erupting into storytelling by black and colored people, for instance, uh, I think of a remarkable novel like Zoe Wickham's uh, David's Story, in which the history of the so-called Hikwa people, a branch of colored people who uh, really developed more into the interior of the country, it's a total new history that is being uh, recounted there. Uh, and it sheds a wholly new light on what had for so long been regarded as South African history. And you find among the older generation and among young student writers at the moment, uh, a sort of eagerness to start telling precisely that, their own story, and not to allow anybody else to appropriate that. But of course, 
uh, I think an important part of the whole endeavor of writing in any given situation is that one should not necessarily want to see a total splintering effect. Uh, all the different peoples and all the different communities within the different peoples in a country like South Africa have their stories and histories to tell. But we are also all South Africans. There is such a lot which we do have in common. And I think the, the urge to identify with each other, to show an understanding or a readiness to make the attempt towards understanding, towards solidarity, uh, also opens the way for, let's say, for white people to tell stories from the black or the colored whatever other community. Not to take over those voices, but to speak with those voices and to show we are trying to understand because there is this joy and exuberance of the discovery of a new identity emerging in the country. And all the voices are necessary for that. I think we're um, out, of out of time now. We're just right on the dot. Um, but um, if you allow um, Andre and I to just go to the signing tent just before you all leave, he will meet you there and you can buy his books and uh, he will uh, perhaps answer, answer a question you might have to put to him yourself. But please thank him for his contribution to that.